0: My name is Charlie Peterson, if we haven't met. I'm uh, the associate pastor of youth, so usually I don't, I'm not allowed upstairs. I have to stay down there. And Actually, I'm a little bummed today we're playing capture the flag, so I'm bummed I'm missing capture the flag, but it's all right. I'll stay with you guys. So this week we're going to talk about um, hope. We're in a series called uh, Believe, and it's a 30-week 30 30 series, if you can believe it. But um, we're in this third, ha- third part, which is all about virtues, um, things that we should exhibit as Christians. And so last week, Pastor Ron talked about... Um, self-control. And I would just tell you, um, if you didn't know, there is a way that you can access past sermons. Um, If you go to our website, up in the top corner, it says resources. You can click resources and podcasts. And we have them going back, I think, like four years. Um, And I would just tell you, go back and listen to Pastor Ron's sermon on self-control, if you heard it or if you didn't. Um, I was super, super encouraged because I think sometimes in the church and outside the church, our idea of self-control is just stop it, you know, and that just doesn't work. And Christ offers such a better example of self-control, and Pastor Ron really shared that gracious way that we can really have self-control through the Holy Spirit, because God makes it happen, and God makes it available to us. But um, so go to our website, um, that's available to you. And today we're going to talk about hope. And my hope is that we can walk out of here uh, with a different idea of what it means to have hope in Jesus, because I think the world is desperate for real hope. Um, They're not desperate for optimism or positive thinking, and those are wonderful things. Uh, But there's something different when we we really talk about this hope that we have in Jesus, this hope that lasts forever. And so we're going to talk today about hope. And so the key question is, how do I deal with the hardships and the struggles of life? And as I was getting ready for it and reading in our Believe Series book, I was just, I was really excited because I think it's a good thing when we as Christians can talk about the fact that life is hard. Once again, we lose um, credibility when we look at the world and we go, come on, it's okay, just be happy. And this world is hard sometimes. And our key idea is this that I can cope with the hardships of life because of the hope I have in Jesus Christ. And we're going to read today our key verses from Hebrews 6. And I'm going to nerd out a little bit because Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible. So um, this is what Hebrews 6 says about hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which is a biblical name that we don't often use for naming our children, and I don't really know why. I think Mel would be a great name. We're not going to go into Melchizedek today. Like I said, I'm a little bit of a nerd, and I love Hebrews. I would love to go into Melchizedek, who was a king in the time of Abraham and a high priest, but we'll leave that one alone. Um, we'll talk a little bit about this symbolism of a curtain and what that means, but I want to start with this image of hope as an anchor for the soul. Now, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and as you imagine, we don't do a lot of seafaring out of Omaha, Nebraska. So um, I did some research, and an anchor has two main purposes, and there's different kinds of anchors. Uh, I had a guy who actually runs boats on the Friday night service come and correct me, and I was like, "It's just, it's just for the sermon. I don't really need to know. <laughs> but... So the anchor has two very simple, and I've simplified them even more, purposes. The first role of an anchor is to um, make it so that we don't drift, right? So you drop that anchor, and then you kind of drift just in a circle around where that anchor is secured. And the second is to provide stability in a storm. So how cool is that, that when we look at who Jesus is to us, he helps us to not drift, and he helps us in storms to be a point of stability. So this week in our Belief series, we're going to talk about things that are false hopes, things that look like the real deal that should be an anchor, and they're just not. And so the first one is riches. And we just love it when we talk about money. But um, sometimes, I think even if we wouldn't say it out loud, a lot of us wouldn't say like, yeah, I really find my hope in riches. But the way that we act, the way that we live, says that our hope and our security isn't how much money we have. I think it's wonderful to save for retirement, and I'm glad that we have people in the financial sector, but there is an entire industry built on if I get X amount of money, then I'll be secure. And we chase after that. And then the storms of life come, and that money doesn't always help. The lives of the rich and the famous, we can look at them and go, they don't have everything figured out. That money doesn't stop storms from coming. And money really, really causes us to drift in the things. Once we start to chase money, Things like compassion, things like generosity get left behind. It's pretty remarkable, but the richest people in the world are the least generous. And so one of the things that I always say, like, you know, as we're starting out, I'm a young guy. I'm not, you know, sitting on stacks of cash, but I want to be generous now because there's a lie that says, once I get more money, I'll give more. And the statistics, the statistics I'm not even going to try that again, are not, <laughs> are not with you. You will not get more generous the more that you have to lose. So we can't find our hope in riches. We also can't find our hope in people. I think sometimes we look at other people and we think, you've got to be my anchor. You've got to be my hope. But that's too much pressure, and they're going to mess up. Even our parents, our spouses, the people that we love the most who love us are going to mess up. They're going to say the wrong thing. And even if we really hold on to someone like a parent or a grandparent, eventually they're not going to be here anymore. And a lot of times when we lose a loved one, it's like we're cut from that anchor and we're set adrift because they were never meant to be your anchor. And then we get people gathered together and we elect some people and we think, oh, this is really where our hope is in the government. And I just can't imagine this is the best time for me to have in this sermon because I don't think we have a lot of hope in the government, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) I like visual cue jokes because people listening to the podcast are going to be very confused. What did he do? But we we cannot put our hope in government, right? We cannot put our hope in politics. It's going to disappoint. And then the last thing is idols. And idols is a very, like, Christian-y word. I think anything we don't like, we call it an idol. But really an idol is that thing that takes the place of God, that we go to for comfort. Psalms is filled with David saying, again and again and again, you're my fortress, you're my comfort, God. So that thing that we run to that makes everything feel okay that isn't God as an idol. For some of us, it's fitness. You know what I mean? Like, if I can get looking in a certain way, then I'm going to be good. I'm going to live longer. It's going to be good. And then, you, you know, something comes along. For some of us, our marriage. Some of them are good things. Some of them are bad things. Substance abuse. All of these things are ways to numb that, that make me feel better in the moment. And each of these things are false hopes. They do disappoint. And even Christians... But especially non-Christians, we put our hope in these things. And for a time, everything's okay. But eventually a storm comes that's big enough to make us realize that that anchor is not secure as, as secure as we thought. And especially as Christians, if you're living and Jesus is not your anchor and it's everything's going fine, then maybe you're not living the life he meant you to live. I was listening to Rick Warren talk about this verse, and he said something like this. I kind of made it rhyme. I have problems with rhyming, but, and this is what it says. If we could put it up on the screen. There we go. The larger the life you want to lead, the larger the storms you'll see, and the larger the anchor you'll need. I think that's really true. God has called us to an extraordinary and incredible life of compassion and forgiveness and love. People were meant to look inside of this church and see a kind of love that could not be explained without the presence of God. And so if if you're living a life as a Christian that doesn't need Christ as an anchor, then you're not living to the fullness of what he's called us to. When the church began, people began to flock by the thousands, not because we had the rules figured out or because our worship was awesome, but because we loved each other in a way that didn't make sense without the presence of God. So if that's not the life you're leading, then you don't need Jesus as an anchor. But if that's the life you're going to lead, then storms will come, forgiveness will be hard, and love will cost you something, and you will need an anchor that lasts forever. This is the kind of love I'm talking about. I'm going to share with you the story of John Staniskew, and he was a Roman uh, Romanian sorry Romanian Christian who was martyred in the 1960s. I want to read you his story. It's from the book Jesus Freaks. It's a story, a collection of stories about martyrs. Since says, The Russian colonel entered the cell carrying the cane used for beating prisoners. As director of the slave labor camp, he had been informed that someone had dared to preach the gospel. Who is the culprit? He demanded, and when no one responded, he said, Then all will be flogged. He started at one end of the cell. Soon the air was filled with the usual screaming and tears, and when he came to Staniskew, he said, Are you not ready yet? Strip this minute. And as he stood, the Romanian deacon, John Staniski, replied, There is a God in heaven, and he will judge you. With this, John's fate was sealed. Everyone knew he would surely be beaten to death, and there was a sudden hush. But at that moment, a guard entered, saying, Colonel Albin, you are called urgently to the office. Some high-ranking generals have come from the ministry. The colonel left, saying to Staniski, We will see each other again soon. However, things didn't turn out quite as the colonel had planned. Communists hate and often jail each other for political reasons, and the generals had come that day to arrest the colonel. And after an hour, Colonel Alvin was back in the cell, but this time as a prisoner. Many inmates jumped at him, trying to lynch him, but Staniskew jumped to his defense, shielding the defeated enemy with his own body. He received many blows himself as he protected the torturer from the flogged prisoners. Staniskew was a real priest that day, a royal priest. A Christian prisoner later asked him, where did you get the power to do this? And he replied, I love Jesus ardently. I always have him before my eyes. I also see him in my enemy. As his children, we do not have to be buffeted about by all the torments that afflict this world. Even when the troubles come, the sunlight of God is shining and there is peace within us. That's the kind of love I'm talking about. That's the kind of love that costs you something. That's the kind of love that needs hope that is anchored to something real. He talks about that we don't have to be buffeted around, and I think of a boat without an anchor that is just tossed around, that has nothing to hold it, but we don't have to be like that because of the hope we have in Jesus, and there is peace within us. Now, this took place in um, Soviet-controlled, communist-controlled Russia, Romania, former Soviet Union. And the father of communism was a man by the name of Karl Marx. And Karl Marx is quoted by a lot of atheists with with this quote. He says, religion is the opiate of the people. Has anyone ever heard that? Very intelligent atheists like to quote that because it sounds really cool. You know, it's the opiate of the people, you know. But it's this idea that as Christians or as people who believe in God, that that you get this feeling of just like, I come to God because the world's hard and I'd rather just be stoned on religion, right? Right? I'd rather just be out of it. And I think a lot of people look at religion like that. Like we all gather together and we're like, you know, the world's rough, but I'm just going to zone out for a while. But Marx has a really shallow understanding of Christian hope. If we look in scripture and we're going to look at Romans 5, we're going to stay in Romans because Romans has this amazing undercurrent that talks about hope throughout the book And Romans 5 says this about Christian hope. Through him, we have also attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is what I'd say about that verse. The false hopes that we talked about, false hopes venture to aid in avoiding suffering. But Christian hope is a child of suffering. Money, people, all these things. We try to get enough money that we can avoid suffering. We try to surround ourselves with enough people that we can avoid suffering. We try to look to the government to help us say, I'm suffering, take it away. And we go to our idols to weather and and just avoid this idea of suffering. But Christian hope is a child of suffering. It's not an opiate. It's not a drug that we take that makes us feel better, that makes us docile. But it's something where we engage with the suffering of the world. And in fact, we invite suffering because it produces hope. I've used this before. I think I use this every time I preach. But there are certain verses that we put on the front of the pamphlet. This is like at the back, said really quickly. Man God calls suffering, which a man You know what I mean? Because we don't like to talk about this. This is one of those, you know, Paul says in another letter that when you become a Christian, you have to eventually move from milk to meat. And this is like not an easy passage. But I want to show you that it does make sense that suffering produces hope. So we're going to look at the the words. And so this word suffering in the Greek is this idea of, like, being crushed. So when we talk about suffering, this is not, sometimes I think in modern Christianity, we're like, I tried to share the gospel and people laughed at me. And that's, that's hard, but I'm talking about being crushed. I'm talking about when you wake up in the morning and you feel like your circumstances are going to crush you, your marriage is not doing well, people and friends are getting cancer or passing away, this idea of being crushed. So it says, in the midst of that crushing experience, do you have joy? And when you do, you develop endurance. So we have a a thing up on the, so suffering, it produces endurance. And endurance is this idea of steadfastness or constancy. In the New Testament, it's the characteristic of a person who has not swerved from their deliberate purpose and loyalty to faith, even by the greatest trials and suffering. And that really makes sense. Um, I'm gonna simplify it for you, and this is by no means extreme suffering, although I feel like it is. Recently, I started running, and that is suffering. (laughs) Especially if you're built like me, I am not a runner. So, you get out there and you're just wheezing, you don't look good, your face is red you're sweating way more than everybody else out there. I run in Kahala. People in Kahala just don't sweat. It's just awful. So I'm suffering, you know, and I'm hacking and wheezing. But through that, as I run more and more and more, I develop endurance, right? Endurance running. And it's not that like magically I just gain these superpowers. No, I develop endurance. I'm able to push past pain better. I'm able to run farther. So we can see suffering does produce endurance. And endurance produces character. Character in the Greek is this idea of something that is approved, something that has been tested, like battle tested. Well, you can't be battle tested until you've been through a battle. And as you develop this character, then your response, it's part of who you are, is hope. When suffering comes, you respond in hope because you have endured and it's now a part of your character. It's kind of like when runners, sometimes you see runners and they look like runners. I'm obviously not there yet, but I think it has to do partly with the what you wear. I need to get shorter shorts and tighter shirts. They <laughs> do. It's like tiny shorts. Anyway, but they begin to look like runners. And these people that go through suffering, they begin to look like they've been through suffering. They begin to look like they could, you know, those people that you're like, I feel like a wave could come and they would just be, they'd still be there. And that's when it becomes a part of our character. And then that produces So it's not this. Sometimes we look at these passages and they're very unattainable, but this is very realistic that suffering would produce hope. And this hope doesn't disappoint, right? This hope is not an opiate. This hope is not something that is just easily obtained. This hope is an anchor for my soul. But this is the really cool part. In Hebrews 6, it goes on, it says, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So again, this sounds kind of weird, like what curtain, what sanctuary, what's he talking about? So in Hebrews, Hebrews is this amazing book where it really um, lays out that, that the temple, which the Jews were crazy about the temple, we really love our, where we gather. I mean, this is a beautiful building that was designed incredibly well, but it's nothing compared to how the Jews felt about their temple. And the temple is really just a reflection, a shadow of what is in heaven. And so in the temple, there is this place in the very middle of the temple called the Holy of Holies, and a lot of us have heard about that. And at once a year, a priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices for the whole year for the people of Israel. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by a really thick curtain. And so on Good Friday earlier this year, when Jesus died on the cross, when he breathed his last, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And it was God's way of saying, there's no more separation. But that's just a shadow of what happened in heaven. Because in heaven, when he died, Jesus went into the most holy place in heaven. Because he's the perfect high priest. That's what it says. He has become a high priest forever. This high priest who entered once in a year, Jesus only had to go once. He went into the holiest place in heaven and he planted our anchor firmly in the very presence of God in heaven, saying that that's where we belong. By his death, by his resurrection, he put our place forever, our anchor forever in heaven. And that's why we have a hope that doesn't disappoint because of what Jesus has done there is a place prepared for us and it's in the very presence of God and the thing is our hope isn't based on these things that we can see even this building our hope has nothing to do with this building this building will pass away our hope is in the things that we can't see we read this in Romans 8:24 it says this for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That sounds a little bit like Dr. Seuss. You know what I mean? It's like switched around. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians that says it like this. So we do not lose heart. In other words, we have hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, in other words, our sufferings, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, or they pass away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The temple passed away. This building will pass away. These songs that we sing will pass away, but his hope is eternal. The things that we don't see are eternal. And this is really comforting. And sometimes there's a temptation as a preacher to just leave you with that. All right, now go on. Go into the world, you know. But there's a next step. Because I think some of us would say, okay, maybe my hope, that's not where my hope is. But how do I fix that? How do I change that? How do I move my hope from, from people, from money, from, from this government, from, from the things that I, that I cling to, to Jesus? In our videos this week, if you're in an Ohana group, we're going to learn from Randy Fraser that there's two ways that we can do that. And one way is to believe in the promise. And I'm going to share a quote with you. It's actually from Charlie Peterson, not me. Um, my grandfather is Charles Peterson I. I don't know if you'd know this, but I'm Charles Peterson third. It's pretty cool, Yeah. I wish that was meaningful. I wish I was like the heir of something, but I'm just the third one of us. And so, um, but my grandpa, uh, last Friday was 10 years to the day that, that he passed away. And two months before he passed away, he got pancreatic cancer. And so my dad was able to go up and, you know, we talked about people being your anchor. Uh, my papa was really my dad's anchor. And he, so my dad would drive up and just spend hours with my papa. And they really got to process through that. My dad got to see that my papa was just a man. But he was a man who loved Jesus. And this is what he said. They were talking about hope. And he said, son, we have more than hope. He said this to my dad. We have a promise from the only person who's kept every promise he's ever made. And that's what God is. Scripture is full. It has 7,000 promises, over 7,000 promises that God has made to us if we would believe in his son. Romans says it this way. It says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance that we talked about and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So through the encouragement of the scriptures, through the encouragement of these thousands of promises that God has made, we can have hope because God's kept every promise he's ever made. He's never lied. One of those promises in Jeremiah 29, 11. We like this one. We like to write it on cards. I got a lot of cards at graduation with this. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So one of his promises is that he has a future and a hope for you, that he has good thoughts that he thinks about you. And we can believe in those promises. But the second thing we have to do is we have to believe in the one making the promises because we all know a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. Think about it. When you go to take a loan out, um, they don't just take your word for it, right? You have to put up something as collateral, saying, if I don't pay you back, you get to keep this. The amazing thing is that God didn't need to put up any collateral. He had kept every promise he'd ever made. But he, he gave us something. In Ephesians 1, we read this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is was a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So when you accepted Jesus, you became his, and he marked you with the Holy Spirit. He didn't need to. He could have just said, I promise you it's waiting in heaven, but he gave you the Holy Spirit, which is a little piece of himself as a promise of the inheritance that is waiting and anchored in heaven. And that's awesome because this is what Romans says. Romans 15, 13, later in 15, it says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He could have just given you a promise. Instead, he said, would you be filled with me, with the God of hope through the Holy Spirit so that your hope would abound, that it would explode, that it would be huge. Some of us love the word of God. A lot of Christians love the word of God, but we don't know the one who wrote it. Some of us love to read the scriptures. We love to dissect the scriptures. We love to think on the scriptures, but when it comes to feeling the presence of God or seeking out his spirit, we get a little uncomfortable. And we're missing out on promise. We've cut the promise in half. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when we messed it up, God's been seeking relationship with us. Not that you would know in your mind that he is good, but that you would know him, that he's a good, good father. He didn't just give us a promise, give us the word, and tell us, hey, go figure it out. He gave us his spirit so that he could walk with us. So if you only have half the promise, I urge you, discover this other half of the promise. Press in, and when we worship together, invite the presence of God that you would feel him. Moses knew God probably the closest of anyone in Scripture. He's, he's called in Scripture the man who spoke to God as a friend face to face. And at some point in Exodus, um, God says, you guys can go on and have the promised land, have all the promises, but I'm not going with you because you're a stiff-necked people. I'm going to use that when I'm a dad. I'm like, you're stiff-necked. You can drive yourself to work. You know, drive yourself to school. But he says, you're stiff-necked, go on, I'm not going to go with you. And this is what Moses said. He says, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, and every now and again, God says something to somebody that I'm like, I want him to say that to me. He said, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I love that Moses isn't like, how are we going to get there without you? He's like, no one's going to know that we're special. We were never meant to be distinguished from the rest of the world by how good we do life or how wonderful our leadership is or how moral we are or how cool our music is. We were meant to be distinguished from the rest of the world by the very presence of God in our midst. Our church is meant to be a beachhead of the presence of God, that people can come here and maybe for the first time in their life understand that there is a God in heaven who is crazy about them, who wants to know them. They should be able to feel his presence here. And instead, we are Christians that live in fear and don't have hope because we're afraid of what other people are doing outside of this church. The song is not that they will know we are Christians by our morality although it will come, we should live a good life. Not that they will know we are Christians by being judgmental. They will know we are Christians by our love, by the hope that we have in Jesus. He ends, in Romans 12, 12 he says this, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. So we have to rejoice in hope and be patient in those times of tribulation, but we have to be constant in prayer. He's a good, good father. He wants to give us good things if we would just ask him for these good things. So through this times of tribulation, be patient, but be talking to God. He wants to talk to you. He wants to hear from you. And no matter what we do, we can rejoice in hope. Would you pray with me? Father God, would you help us to shift our hope from these transient, these things that aren't going to last. God, would you shift our hope to you, to our everlasting place that is in your presence. God, fill your people with your spirit, that our hope would be alive in this world, that we would be representatives of your spirit, that no matter where we go, people would sense you and your goodness. And that they would discover you as a hope that is an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. It won't let go of us. God, we look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.